The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. It wasn't a good week for the Delta Tunnels project. One major stakeholder has pulled out of the funding. We have the details. California citrus production is up. Florida's is down. Way down. And it's not just citrus greening disease. We have a report of Hurricane Irma's path of destruction through Florida citrus country. The Sacramento Valley rice harvest is underway. We talk with one rice farmer and get a primer on all the varieties of rice grown in our area. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. It was an interesting week for Governor Brown's Delta Tunnels project, a $17 billion proposal to install two massive tunnels beneath the Sacramento River. It would divert water from near Cortland in southern Sacramento County, about 30 miles south to near Tracy, in order to provide more reliable water supplies to central and southern California. Delta area farmers, some environmental groups, and governmental entities such as the County of Sacramento were opposed to the project for any number of reasons. Scores of lawsuits have been filed to halt the project. But what may actually kill the Delta Tunnels proposal happened this past week. One of the largest stakeholders in advancing the project, the Westlands Water District, voted 7-1 to one not to fund the Delta Tunnels. This consortium of 600 farmers in Fresno and Kings Counties would have been on the hook for 20-25% to 25% of the total cost of the project. Complicating the matter, there was no guarantee of getting more water. When Westlands crunched the numbers, it turned out that the cost of an acre foot of water for those farmers would rise from its current $173 an acre foot to $600 an acre foot. And as one farmer put it there, there isn't anything we can grow profitably if we're paying $600 an acre foot. So Westland set out to convince other Northern California water agencies who weren't part of the Delta Tunnel stakeholders to share in the cost. They weren't successful. Three groups that they approached, the Sacramento County Water District, the El Dorado Irrigation District, and the Placer Water Agency all said no, citing they could see no benefits to them for raising the rates of their customers. Tom Birmingham, Westland's Water District General Manager, says the numbers just didn't pan out for supporting the project that's officially known as California Water Fix. He told KCRA News, The decision was not to participate in the California Water Fix based upon the cost and the, the uncertainty concerning the water supply that would be created by this project. Birmingham told the Westlands board at that meeting that if the vote does go down to defeat, the project will be over. But will it be over? Westlands was the first of the many stakeholders in the Delta Tunnels project to take a vote on the matter. Other votes will follow in the weeks ahead, including the tunnel's biggest proponent and the biggest stakeholder, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. It has 19 million mostly urban customers. They would see their water bills rise by about 2 or $3 a month if the Delta Tunnels project was approved. Will more no votes mean the project will be mothballed? Barbara Berrigan Padilla, the executive director of the anti-tunnels group Restore the Delta, was cautiously optimistic. It's a very good day for California. This is not the end of Cal Water Fix, but it's definitely going to make it much harder for them to go forward. And it's time for Governor Brown to drop it. At press time, Governor Brown had no response to Padilla's call to drop the California Water Fix project. 
However, his office pointed reporters to a press release from John Laird, the director of California's Office of Natural Resources. The release stated, failing to act puts future water supply reliability at risk. This vote, while disappointing, in no way signals the end. The Sacramento Bee reported that the project was dealt another blow earlier this month when a federal audit revealed that it had received an improper $50 million subsidy from the Bureau of Reclamation. The U.S. Department of the Interior's Inspector General said the money was spent helping Central Valley project contractors, such as Westlands, to plan the tunnel's project. Brown's office has insisted that no taxpayer funds would go to the tunnels. As we reported last week, California citrus production for the first time in decades has outpaced Florida citrus production. In the latest marketing year, California's citrus, 4 million tons sold by California's farmers to Florida's 3.5 million tons. Much of that Florida decline can be laid at the feet of the Asian citrus psyllid and the disease it vectors, Wanglong Bing, also known as citrus greening disease. And now add Hurricane Irma to the woes of the Florida citrus industry. CBS News' Carter Evans files this report. We're down about a foot from where we were earlier this morning. More than 60% of Paul Metter's crop is either in the water or in the dirt. Thousands of trees were ripped out of the ground by Hurricane Irma's blistering winds. And it's not salvageable either. Not any part of it. This would normally would not be harvested until April or May. His crop was destined to become orange juice. But now, with much of it floating in three feet of flood water, it looks more like an orange soup. As you can see by the amount of fruit on the ground, this is more than an average crop. This was a banner year. Uh, it was a banner year. So if we had delivered this crop in, we probably would have been back in the black for the first time in a very long time. But all that fruit made these trees top-heavy pushovers for Irma. And trees left in the water for more than three days could also rot or die. Metter's losses could be up to $9 million, and he's not the only one. We have 125,000 acres of citrus groves in this area. What percentage of those crops do you think was damaged? All. Every acre of that 125,000 acres. Gene McAvoy is an agriculture expert with the University of Florida. 95% of the oranges? 95% of the oranges in Florida, particularly in this region, go for juice. What's going to happen to the orange juice market? You're going to pay a lot more for orange juice. Now, growers tell me that these trees were subjected to so much stress during the hurricane that even some of this remaining fruit may not survive. The damage here is so bad that the Secretary of Agriculture is now planning a trip to Florida to see it for himself. Florida, USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue says seeing the post-Irma devastation firsthand is more powerful than simply seeing it on TV. This is the difference in this storm. It's more comprehensive than we've seen overall from the tip of uh, the Keys up to the Panhandle. It was an unfortunate path that Irma took and uh, created a lot of havoc through agriculture all through the state. His comments came amidst aerial surveys of the damage in Florida, along with the state's Agriculture Commissioner, Adam Putnam. This is a kick in the gut to rural Florida. The storm hit so many different crops, which led journalists to ask if consumers will see higher prices at the grocery store for things like fresh vegetables. This is a widespread disaster 
that's, that's more than just what you'll feel at the produce section of your grocery store. He pointed to the negative ripple effect for people in the state whose livelihoods are directly or indirectly influenced by agriculture. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. One of the largest month-over-month increases in the Agriculture Department's September crop production forecast involved the nation's cotton crop. Production estimates from August rose 6%, fueled by expected record yields. However, cotton may be the crop most subject to production and yield changes due to upcoming data collection of harvested acreage. USDA Chief Economist Rob Johansson explains. We're going to probably see more adjustments this October than we normally would see due to the fact that a lot of our estimates today couldn't fully incorporate the effects of both Hurricane Harvey in Texas and Louisiana, as well as Hurricane Irma in Florida and a lot of those southeastern production states. And it's not just cotton production and yield numbers that could change next month due to updated harvested acreage information. National Agricultural Statistics Service field staff will also collect similar data for crops like rice, soybeans, and peanuts in impacted states. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. Cotton bowls are starting to open. Alfalfa fields continue to be irrigated and baled. Sorghum for silage is in various stages of development. Corn silage continues to be harvested. Stone fruit harvest is drawing to a close. Wine table and raisin grape harvest is ongoing. Raisin grapes are in trays, out for drying. Asian pears, other pears, figs, and pomegranates are being harvested. Kiwi fruit in Tulare County is nearing maturity. Cherry orchards are being pruned now. Persimmons continue to gain size and are coloring up. Valencia oranges and lemons are being harvested and packed. Some orange groves are pushed out to make way for new plantings. Early apple varieties are being harvested. The almond harvest is ongoing. Walnut orchards are being prepped for harvest and sprayed for husk fly and navel orange worm. A few walnuts are already being harvested. Growth regulator sprays are applied to some walnut groves to promote development. The pistachio harvest is continuing. In San Joaquin County, the onion harvest is nearly complete. Harvest continues for honeydew melons, watermelons, cantaloupe, and pumpkins. Farmer market vegetables continue to be harvested. In Fresno County, the tomato harvest is almost done with diminished yields reported. Bell pepper harvest is ongoing. Soil is being prepped for planting carrots and lettuce for seed. These efforts were complicated by recent rains and wind. In Tulare County, tomatoes, cucumbers, squash, and peppers are being picked by certified producers and sold at local farmers' markets. Yellow squash, zucchini, eggplant, bell peppers, green chili peppers, and cucumbers are being harvested and shipped domestically. Fall vegetables are being planted. They're developing well. Pumpkins are prepped for harvest as well. Non-irrigated and foothill rangeland was essentially all dry after months of high heat. Supplemental feeding of cattle is ongoing. Fire season continues. Some rangeland in Santa Barbara County was burned. Bees are being moved out of state as pollination needs were wrapping up for the year. The Sacramento Valley rice harvest is underway. Sutter County sweet rice grower Greg Van Dyke of VA Farms told CalRice that the fields look good now, but for harvesting purposes, Mother Nature needs to cooperate. It's always a very exciting time for rice farmers during harvest because we only get to grow one crop a year. And down in South Sutter County, where we're at, my family grows about 3,000 acres of rice. This year we grew about 1,700 because of the late winter and rains that we had, which delayed a lot of the planting for the industry and reduced the acreage by about 20% of the overall industry this year. We're looking for good weather, no rain. Rain this time of year is the rice farmer's nemesis. We 
want good solid ground and good standing rice that's easy and efficient for us to harvest and doesn't affect the quality. So we want good weather, no rain, you know, and no winds. We just want generally good weather. And if that holds out, we don't ask for too much. That makes us happy. Sweet rice is harvested earlier than the Calrose varieties. It's a glutinous variety, which becomes very sticky with a slightly sweet taste when cooked. Sweet rice is commonly used in dessert foods. Long grain, medium grain, short grain, sweet rice, Calrose. There's a lot of rice grown in California. We're talking with Jim Morris of the California Rice Commission. And, and Jim, what is the history of rice in California? It actually goes back to what, about 1912? Yes, it goes back more than 100 years. Uh, we actually grew rice prior to that in the state, but it wasn't the right varieties or in the right soil types to take hold. It took till 1912. It was in Butte County, a Japanese-style rice that was planted, and the rest is history. We've done very well with rice in California for more than 100 years. And the first rice that was planted here commercially that was successful, was that a short-grain rice? Yeah, it was a, a Japanese-style rice, and those do exceptionally well here. There are two types of rice produced in the world. There's japonica, which is what we specialize in California, and that's moist and sticky rice. And then there's indica rice, which is also eaten in many places of the world, and that has longer grains and is fluffier. Where is that primarily grown? It's grown in the southern U.S., and then there's other countries in the world that produce that. All right, let's talk a little bit about the differences between a short grain, a medium grain, and a long grain. Anybody who goes into a grocery store is going to be hit with those words when they're looking at all that rice on their shelves. So what does it all mean? Well, the biggest difference is between medium grain and long grain. Your long grain, if you will, is a fluffy Uncle Ben style rice that has many wonderful applications. Your medium and short grain is going to be a little bit more difficult for consumers to differentiate. Medium grain rice, Calrose rice, which is a real workhorse in California, accounting for more than 80% of our production, and that started in 1948. Uh, it's used for sushi, for steamed rice, paella, risotto, pilafs, rice bowls. We also grow super premium short grain rice, and that's also ideal for sushi. It's for the most discriminating consumers. It's also utilized for traditional Japanese cuisine. And it's interesting because the varieties that we grow here, Koshi Hikari and Akita Kamachi, are directly from uh, Japan, and they do exceptionally well. In fact, Japan is one of our very large overseas customers. That's interesting that California rice is a major exporter to Japan. Yes, we, we ship about a billion pounds a year to Japan, and it's quite a compliment when you have customers that are that discriminating that enjoy your rice. When customers go to the store to, to buy rice, they also may see the term Calrose. What is Calrose? Well, Calrose really is uh, the signature item for rice in California. And it's interesting because if a consumer asks, well, how would I find California rice? It might be more difficult than you think if you're just looking at the label. The labels can have an Asian motif to them. But if it says Calrose on it, it will be California rice. And we provide virtually all of the sushi rice in America. And then there's what we just heard about sweet rice. What is sweet rice? Well, sweet rice is one of the earlier varieties that's harvested in California. It's happening right now, and it's used for desserts, puddings. Uh, it's a confectionery rice, and it's also used for one of my favorites, mochi ice cream. What is in mochi ice cream? 
Well, it's uh, it's a Japanese delicacy. Uh, it's served many different areas. You can also find it at retail. Uh, we've had it many, many times at Makuni, for example. And it's a dollop of ice cream that's wrapped around uh, rice flour, and it is just fantastic. California rice is grown in many areas of the Sacramento Valley. What are the big uh, counties in Northern California that are growing rice? Well, when you look at Sacramento North, you're going to go about 100 miles. So you're looking at Butte, Glen, Sutter, Yuba, Sacramento, that whole region from north of the capital up for about 100 miles is an exceptional area to grow rice. Heavy clay soils, relatively abundant water, and tremendous weather, too. You have the warm evenings. Uh, works great for growing rice. And as we found out a few weeks ago from Placer County Ag Commissioner Josh Hunsinger, rice is also the primary ag commodity of Placer County in western Placer County. Well, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful crop. And the neat thing, too, is once we're done with harvest, which will wrap up in early November, we will go right into the the Pacific flyway migration of millions of birds. There'll be a little bit of water that will help degrade the rice straw in the fields. And lo and behold, millions of birds will be utilizing the rice fields. The environmental benefits that come from this crop are huge. Jim, if people want more information about rice in California, what's a good website for them to visit? You know, calrice.org. We're updating it daily. And also we have the big Farm to Fork Festival coming up. We'll have a booth and a chef demonstration. It's a really nice way for consumers to see firsthand. We're actually going to have live rice plants at our booth so people can see we're bringing the country to the city, if you will. Jim Morris, California Rice Commission. Thanks for a few minutes of your time. Pleasure, Fred. One southern crop that is out of Irma's sphere of influence is rice. Now 43% harvested, three points ahead of the five-year average, but behind last year's 48%. But as USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey points out, some of the harvest has been influenced by Harvey. Rice harvest still basically stalled in Texas and Louisiana areas where the second crop rice was still, uh, some of it still on the ground when Harvey hit last month. Both states are at 91% harvested. And of course, given the flooding and conditions there, it's going to be tough to harvest the remaining acreage in those two states. He says 41 percent of rice has been harvested in Arkansas, the country's top rice producer. Rice condition basically steady from last week, 71 percent good to excellent, 7 percent very poor to poor. He says this year's rice condition is better than last year's. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. U.S. agricultural exports so far this year? Things are headed on a positive trend. Agriculture Department Trade Analyst Bryce Cook, we now have the official numbers for the first 10 months of the fiscal year, October through July, and we have sold to other countries $119.7 billion worth of ag products. Last year, same time frame, it was only $107 billion, so we're up 12% from a year ago. That does have to do with the fact that the value of the U.S. dollar has declined to substantially since the beginning of 2017. Which, of course, in essence, makes our products cheaper to buy for most countries, and that moves more product. So we have a weaker dollar helping to boost exports. It also has to do with increased expectations of general trade on a global scale. And Cook says we also have seen a little bit of growth in the overall global economy, resulting in export values ahead of last year, especially for the bulk commodities. Bryce Cook says for the first 10 months of the fiscal year, compared to the same time frame a year ago. The value of, of cotton right now is, is up 88% over what it was a year ago. Wheat is up 31% in value terms. 
soybeans is up 22% and corn is up 20% in comparison to last year. And those are bigger increases than had been expected. And so, just recently, USDA raised its forecast for this year's ag exports. Back in May, USDA's chief economist Rob Johansson had been projecting total exports for the year to be $137 billion. But according to the new forecast... We're almost at $140 billion in exports expected. $139.8 billion. In addition to the reasons that Bryce Cook gave us for increases in exports, Johansson says... We had a, a wonderful harvest last year for most of the major commodities, and South America had a bit of a tough time last year with their previous year crop. Which has helped boost U.S. sales. If we do make the projected $139.8 billion this season, that would be more than $10 billion over 2016's export sales. Now, for 2018... Pretty much steady as she goes. No real big changes one way or another. Down just a tad to $139 billion even. But that is a very early forecast for a fiscal year that doesn't even start until October 1st. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Farmers can spend thousands of dollars getting the latest weather forecasts, including long-range forecasts. Well, for less than 10 bucks, you can get a long-range forecast from the Old Farmer's Almanac. And they're out with their 2017-2018 winter predictions for California's Central Valley foothills and mountains. And the Old Farmer's Almanac is predicting that winter will be cooler than normal with rainfall above normal in the north and near normal in the south of California. The coldest periods will occur from late November into early December and into early February. Mountain snows will be above normal with the stormiest periods in early to mid-November and early and late January. So in summary, it's going to be cold and wet for California, but cold and dry in the Pacific Northwest. Part of the methodology the Old Farmer's Almanac uses is sunspot activity. Interested in starting to use drones in your agricultural operations, but you really don't know where to begin? Coming up, sponsored by the University of California, is Drone Technology for Crop Agriculture Workshop. It'll be happening September 28th and 29th. It'll be held in Davis at the UC Ag and Natural Resources Headquarters at 2801 2nd Street. They'll be going over what you need to get started, including basic drone operation, safety regulations, and an in-depth course on how to actually offload data and process it into decision-making tools. It's a two-day workshop meant for beginners. It'll be focusing on some real-world applications in agriculture, such as row crops, orchards, and rangeland. Space is limited, and you can register by calling 530-666-8143, 530-666-8143 for more information about the Agricultural Drone Workshop coming up September 28th and 29th at the UCANR headquarters in Davis. Hurricane-related flooding and expansive wildfires have been in the natural disaster headlines lately. But no matter the situation, preparedness for a disaster, if possible, is important. And as Lori Sharmer of North Dakota State University Extension adds, that includes disaster preparedness for your financial resources. Preparing our finances for disaster can have a huge benefit when it comes to recovering. So what can be done to prepare financially for a disaster? Sharmer says the place to start is making conscious decisions prior to a disaster striking. Decisions such as having an emergency fund, having insurance, making sure that our important papers are in order and in a safe place, doing an inventory on our home. All of those things will play into recovering and bouncing back from a disaster. 
And from there, all those important financial resources and information should be kept together in one place. A financial grab-and-go first aid kit. It's having all that financial information in one spot. We're at least able to grab and get them. Account numbers, where are your accounts? Where are your insurance policies? Who is your insurance agent? Who do you call? Even if it's copies of important documents, such as birth certificates and credit cards, those should be included in a grab-and-go kit. Documents can either be hard-copied or for easy access and transport, scanned and saved in a computer thumb drive or even on an online storage system. But Sharmer cautions. We need to be careful about the security of any system that we use when we're looking at an online system. So people may be more comfortable with a thumb drive that they have control of. Having a small amount of cash on hand in the event of a disaster is important, especially when access to ATMs or banks may not be available. In those first hours and days following a disaster, sometimes your only option is actual cash in hand. So important that we have at least a little pot of cash money available. Financial preparedness also includes looking into insurance, not only having it, but what exactly it covers. If we're looking at like a basic homeowner's insurance, well, that'll cover a tornado, maybe a wind event. It won't cover flood. And so it's important that we know that so that we have the basic homeowner's insurance. We have a home. But if we're in a flood-prone area, we want to make sure that we have flood insurance also. And to reduce the amount of physical and financial damage from a disaster, Sharmer says some pre-disaster home and property maintenance should occur, such as placing shutters on homes in hurricane zones, anchoring large objects in earthquake areas, or removing brush and fuels around a home located in wildfire-prone locations. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The National Bioengineered Food Disclosure Standard, otherwise known as a National GMO Labeling Rule, is intended to require the disclosure of bioengineered food ingredients. The standard was signed into law last year and gave USDA two years to come up with a rule by July 2018. AFBF Congressional Relations Director Andrew Walmsley says the USDA rule must not confuse consumers on the safety of biotech crops. The biggest thing for farmers is that we follow the law, we follow science, and implement in a way that doesn't disparage a perfectly safe and very important tool that farmers need to meet the challenges of the future. Walmsley explains what AFBF requested of the rule. What we want to see is a rule that doesn't disparage a perfectly safe and healthy product. This isn't a health or safety or nutrition standard. It's purely a marketing standard. And so keeping that in mind as any rule is being developed that is for marketing purposes and a good opportunity to provide more information to consumers. The comment period ended Friday. USDA is expected to release a proposed rule later this fall. So we'll see where they're at in the fall and have a much more formal process to have our members and others call in and write and make sure the agency knows the path forward on implementing a good rule. Michael Clements, Washington. You've heard us talk on this program about conservation agriculture, and that rests on three simple yet very transformative practices. Parking the plow, keeping the soil covered with plants, and growing a diversity of crops. Together, these practices use less fossil fuel and chemicals to maintain or improve crop yields. David Montgomery has written a new book called Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. And he says, although this would transform agriculture, there are costs involved and maybe the priorities of where we're putting our money for agriculture should be redirected. It's a winning combination. And when, when you think about what that represents in terms of the philosophy of farming, that sort, each one of those things is about 180 degrees from where 
you know, farming mostly went to develop conventional practices or now conventional practices over the 20th century. We relied on intensive tillage with large-scale uses and reliance on fertilizers and um, and pesticides, and we would grow, you know, one or specializing one or two dominant crops. These three principles flip that entirely on its head, and it takes a couple years for that process to play through and start rebuilding fertility in a way that will will pencil out. And so helping farmers through the transition period is, I think, a real important policy issue that ought to be looked at and encouraged because at present, most of our agricultural subsidies and um, and incentives sort of encourage maintaining conventional practices, which demonstrably over the long run degrade the native fertility of the soil and, and come to rely on the outside inputs to produce large crops. This new system allows an opportunity for us to really, I think, put agriculture, the very foundation of civilization, on a much more stable, long-term um, basis, because we really need to worry about how we're going to feed the world, not just for the next couple of decades. We need to think about over the next few hundred years. We, we simply can't afford to have widespread farming practices that degrade the fertility of the soil. And what I'm so excited about with what these farmers showed me with their systems was that it's not that stark a choice. We, there are methods of farming that could it, uh, result in a very intensive and productive agriculture that could actually keep feeding the world over the long run. And we need to get there eventually, and I'm, I'm thrilled to see that there's people who are already well down the path of showing us how to do it. The name of the book, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. The author, David Montgomery. David, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Pleasure to talk to you. Wildfire suppression costs for the fiscal year have exceeded $2 billion, making 2017 the most expensive year on record. USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue renewed his call for Congress to fix the way the U.S. Forest Service's fire suppression efforts are funded. Our budget has moved from 15% of fire suppression to over half. It may be more than that this year, and there's no way we can do the kind of forest management and prescribed burning and harvesting and insect control, all those kind of things that the the Forest Service's new head, Tony Took, spoke on the issue recently in Oregon. We desperately need a fire funding fix. Large emergency fires that are natural disasters, and, and they need to be funded like natural disasters. The Forest Service is forced to redirect money within its own budget to pay for increasing fire suppression costs. Instead, the two leaders believe the expenses should be paid out of a separate fund. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The winds from Hurricane Irma. The worst wind event we've probably ever had hit the Georgia pecan industry. University of Georgia Extensive Pecan Specialist Lynn Wells. I think every orchard in the state has damage. Every orchard pretty much has a lot of limbs down and a lot of nuts blown off the tree. Most orchards have a few trees down at least. And Irma came at a bad time. Almost all the pecans were at least a month away from being ready to harvest and sell, so those on the ground, no good. Wells says if you count all the pecan-related damage in Georgia... We're looking at about a 30% crop loss. Early ballpark figure. Meanwhile, Lance Honig with USDA Statistics Service says they're about to go out and survey the pecan producers to ask them... How much were they impacted? What kind of resulting production might that look like? And that'll be reported in USDA's October 12th crop report. Lynn Wells says most growers will still have some pecans to harvest and most have crop insurance and considering that Irma was a bit weaker than expected it could have been a lot worse in Washington Gary Crawford for the US Department of Agriculture with the problems in Georgia can California's growing pecan acreage fill that gap created by Hurricane Irma down in Georgia 
Well, probably not. California is just the seventh largest of 14 pecan-producing states based on last five years' production. Even though new orchards are being planted every year, it's still more limited than all the planting that happened back in the 1970s. For 2016, California pecan production forecast was for 5 million pounds. Still, there's a lot of upside to California's pecan industry. At the World Ag Expo, we talked with one California pecan grower. We're talking with Carlene Hamp of Linwood Nursery in LaGrange, grower of pecan trees. So tell us a little bit about Linwood Nursery. Linwood Nursery is a, a pecan nursery, strictly pecans. We sell um, all over the United States and, and internationally. And we are now 100 years old this year. To, uh, 2015 marks our 100-year anniversary. You've been in California for 100 years. The pecan has been here a bit longer, you say? Yes, pecans actually are the only nut that's native to North America. Um, all the other nut, tre nut trees have been brought in from other countries, but pecans have always been here. Another attractive uh, af aspect of the pecan tree, it, it, it's kind of a low-chill tree. Yes, pecans actually don't take that many chilling hours, about 300 hours. Um, the nice thing about pecans, they, they do well in different climates. Um, we sell trees into Arizona, New Mexico, Texas. They can handle extreme colds. Um, I've had you know young trees that have been out sub-zero, and they survive and actually do well. Um, whereas if you had other trees, almonds, walnuts, out in that kind of climate, uh, your end result might be a little different. How is the pecan industry in California these days? The pecan industry in California is really starting to pick up. Um, we've seen an increase in plantings going in um, just steadily in the last few years. Now, pecans are not a small tree, and I would think that uh, you would need special equipment for harvesting, or are it, is it like other crops where you can reduce the size of the tree and still get a good crop? That's exactly right, Fred. They um, Pecans can be topped and hedged, um, so plantings on pecans, they are spaced out a little more than like a walnut tree, um, but they're on like a 30 by 30 spacing, 30 feet by 30 feet, that general spacing, and so, and then they're topped. Uh, trees that, you know, we don't see these pecan trees that are 60 to 80 feet tall anymore. What are the popular varieties, or I should say the successful varieties in California? In California, there's actually, depending upon where you're located, a combination of trees that, that work well. In Northern California, um, they tend to plant a lot more Pawnees um, with, with po different pollinators, uh, maybe like a Nakono, Lakota, Shoshone, Wichita as pollinators. Um, and that's because that harvests early and they have to deal more with early rains. When we get them in California, we can get early rains. Um, or in, you know, south of Sacramento, the combination tends to be more Wichitas with western pollinators. Um, probably produces a little uh, more nuts than the Pawnee combination, but they come off much later. So getting them out of the field becomes a challenge for northern California growers. We've seen the almond industry burgeon uh, for one good reason. There are now self-pollinating varieties. Are there any self-pollinating pecans out there? Right now, the, the one variety that's considered self-fruitful is Western Shalai. 
Um, but even still, if you put a pollinator with that, it produces more. So right now there aren't um, any that I would recommend just going, if you were in an isolated area, just going with that variety without pollinators. Um, you know, they're, they're wind pollinated, they're not bee pollinated. So I, I would really suggest that you put in uh, 10 to 20% pollinators. The nice thing about um, pecans is the pollinators are normally you can come up with very good nuts, good quality nuts as the pollinator as well. So it's not like a, a throwaway variety or something. Are they alternate bearing? Pecans historically have been alternate bearing. Um, we're really, growers here in California in particular have been doing a good job of their older trees between topping and hedging, um, eliminating that. There, there might be a slight difference, but that difference is only like a couple of hundred pounds now, as opposed to, you know, years ago, you could have a, a 4,000 pound crop uh, per acre of very poor quality, and then the next year you might only get 400 pounds. Uh, the swing can be that high, but if you keep it at a steady um, level, you end up having a good crop every year. What are the hot areas of California for pecan trees? Normal, norm, north of California, starting in about Yuba City and going up through the Corning area is kind of the belt for pecans right there from 99th over to I-5. And then right here where we are for the World Egg Expo in, in Visalia and Tulare um, is Porterville, Visalia, Tulare. This whole area right here, they're starting to do plantings of pecans. Now we got to address the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and that's water and the drought. Uh, how drought tolerant are pecan trees? I would not consider pecans a drought tolerant variety. Um, some of the nice things about pecans, some of these guys that are planted close to, especially like Northern California, closer to rice fields and things like that, the water from the rice fields kind of subs over and does do the irrigating on, at certain times of year for the pecan trees. But overall, pecans are not a considered a drought tolerant variety. What are the growers doing to help mitigate the drought? Are they, are they mulching or switching their uh, irrigation system? We've seen, you know, pecans, which were typically on a flood irrigation program for the most part, both in, you know, in California, Arizona, New Mexico, all of the, the western states, they're starting to use more high-tech irrigation, micro, drip, um, because we're all trying to conserve water right now. Do they need winter water to survive? I haven't had too many pecan growers that have had to uh, resort to winter watering their um, pecans. That's probably because the root system is a very deep-rooted tree. Um, so they they really haven't had to do too much in the line of winter watering on pecans. It's, it's from, you know, spring when the trees start pushing until fall when they go to sleep. And who's buying pecans? Is it uh, growing in the international market? The world. The world, um, internationally, pecans are growing. Compared to the, the almond and walnut market, it, it's, it's a smaller piece of the pie. Um, you know, your almonds are, are well, well up over, um, you know, a two billion pound crop. Whereas in pecans, and this is across the entire pecan belt, which is from California to Florida, your production is more like about 300 million pounds. So there's a big difference. There's a lot of room for growth. What percentage of pecan production occurs here in California? 
Lately, I've, from what I've seen, um, it looks like it's about four million pounds. It's a very small percentage of the, the the national amount that's produced. But there have been a lot of young younger planting, new plantings going in that I think you're going to see our production starting to increase here in California. So the ideal climate for growing pecans then would mimic what we have here in the Central Valley, especially north of Sacramento, where you probably get a bit more rain. Mm-hmm. And and yet here in the Central Valley near Tulare, where you can see pecan orchards uh, with, I would think, a lot of irrigation. Yes, that, uh, that's that's pretty much what's happening. <laughs> where are the pecans processed? There's really three companies that handle them. There's two right here in the Visalia area. Um, Blaine Farms and Hamilton Ranches, and then up north, uh, Gary Vance G&G Farms handles pecans up there. And those are really the only three that I'm aware of. If anybody knows of anybody else, let me know. (laughs) Do you have a good pecan pie recipe? I have an excellent pecan pie recipe. (laughs) Of course I do. It's a generational thing. (laughs) All right. She's going to keep it a secret, though. That's okay. Carlene Hamp of Linwood Nursery, thanks for spending a few minutes with us telling us about pecans. No problem. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.